Good morning. Welcome to an online service here at Bethesda Evangelical Church. My name is David, one of the pastors here. We are so glad that you're with us this morning. We hope that you encounter God through this service. Before we move forward, I'd like to open us up in a word of prayer. So please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Lord, we come before you. There's fears, there's anxieties, there's worries. Lord, would you be with your people? Would you protect us from the evil one, his servants and their works? Would you grant us health and a sense of your nearness? And Lord, I pray that we would be humble and content with what you've provided for us. And even though we are doing this through technology, we pray that you would be glorified and your people would be edified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're living in unprecedented times, uncertain times, times where there is some fear and anxiety over the future. The question is, where do we turn when we feel this way? And the answer for the church has always been and will always be the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to do today is open up our Bibles, the Word of God, and see what God wants to speak to us through His Word. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible at home right now, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enion near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above heaven. He bears witness to what he has said and seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Later this summer... Denise, Caleb, and I are all going to be in a wedding. We're playing significant roles in a wedding. 
this is the first time that we've all, three of us, have been in a wedding together and might be our last time together. And we look forward to it with eager anticipation. Uh, last Saturday, believe it or not, Denise and I were at a wedding, and yesterday was our wedding anniversary. So all of these wedding thoughts, both in the past and in the future, got me thinking of, of my own wedding. And those of you who are married, you probably feel the same way when you attend a wedding service. Perhaps you reflect on your wedding day and what it was like. I, I always do the same, and whenever I reflect on my wedding, we had a wonderful day. And one of the highlights of the day was the role of my best man, the younger brother. He did a spectacular job, so much so that people weeks later were coming to me saying, your best man did an amazing job. He had a thoughtful speech. He was servant-hearted. He did not try to get the attention for himself. He was so unbelievably others-centered. You know, nothing is worse when you go to a wedding and the maid of honor or the matron of honor or best man is trying to hog the, the attention. You know, it's, it's not about them on that day. On the wedding day, it's about the bride and the groom. And a good best man will do a good job of pointing to the groom. In some ways, this is kind of like the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist is like a great best man who points to Jesus and makes sure that the attention goes on him. We'd love to live this way, but if we're honest, we can easily forget that our lives are, are supposed to be about Christ, not about us. We exist. The reality should produce a sense of humility and a sense of contentment in us, but pride shows up quickly. We love the praises of men more than the approval of God. We know that things come from the Lord, but we easily get discontent and we compare our lives with others. The big idea of the sermon is that since all things come from God, this should produce a sense of humility and contentment in us. But how does this happen? We start in the beginning of the passage and we learn about baptisms going on. It says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing people. Uh, one thing to be clear of is that Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, but he was overseeing the baptisms. We know this because in John chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So it is best to say that Jesus was overseeing the baptisms going on. Now, baptism is not the main point of this passage, so I'm not going to belabor the differences between infant baptism and believer's baptism. I'll be happy to step on that grenade in a different sermon. But for now, we can just say, look, people are being baptized. Why? They're meeting Jesus. Their lives are being transformed by the preaching, teaching, healing ministry of Jesus. And after their conversion, they get baptized as a sign and symbol of their declaration to the Lord Jesus Christ. It would have been unthinkable for anyone in the New Testament to be a Christian and not have been baptized. So that's what's going on. There's, there's people meeting Jesus and being changed, and as a sign of obedience to him, they're being baptized and John's disciples are doing the same thing and while baptism is going on there's we're informed of a discussion between one of John's followers and an unnamed Jew over purification which is an Old Testament ceremonial washing and they, they have this debate they have this discussion right so we get Jesus and his disciples baptizing and John and his disciples baptizing and then there's discussion and someone asks this verse 26 rabbi which means teacher he who was with you, that is Jesus, across the Jordan 
Look, to whom you bore witness, he is baptizing, and all are going out to him. John's disciples, or John's followers at this point, are, are getting jealous. They're getting resentful. They, they think that John the Baptist is the only one who should have the credibility or authority to baptize anyone. They're starting to compare their lives to others, and they're, they're seeing that Jesus is rising in popularity, and that starts to bother them. They even exaggerate when they say, look, all are going out to him. That's not true because in the previous verse it says that John himself was baptizing people still. But they were doing what we always do when we get jealous and envious of other people. They were exaggerating the truth. And John the Baptist replies in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. What a statement. A person cannot receive a single thing unless God gives it to him. And, and this is teaching that aligns with other scriptures. Uh, listen to the way James puts it in James chapter 1, verses 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. When the Apostle Paul was dealing with jealousy and envy in the Corinthian church, he asked these questions. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? John the Baptist's disciples were getting jealous and envious, and John the Baptist was quickly putting them in their place and reminding them where ministry success, where opportunities come from in the first place. One of the things that this verse teaches us that aligns with other places in Scripture is that career success, ability to make money and provide for your family, any health that you're experiencing right now, uh, ministry opportunities, uh, ways in which God has used you to bless someone tremendously, your spiritual talents, your spiritual gifts, the things that you're good at that other people in your life say, wow, you're really good at that thing. All of that comes from the hand of God. Without God's help, you would not have any of that. And some of you would push back rightly, and I appreciate the pushback. You might say something like, like, like you don't get me, you don't understand. Like, I, I get up at 6 a.m. to go to work. I've gotten this degree. I've made these relational networks. I've worked really, really, really hard. Unlike my siblings or my people that I grew up with, I'm, I'm far more successful because of the work ethic that I have portrayed. And you, you are, in some measure, really right about that, that you are enjoying blessings that other people are not enjoying because you're doing things that other people aren't doing. That is a fair pushback. However, that sort of thinking doesn't really get to the heart of the matter still. Uh, in theology, we uh, distinguish between primary cause and secondary cause. Secondary causes, you, the things you do. You get up, you're not a robot, right? You're, you get up, you work hard, you got that degree, you made those connections, the effort, the things you put forward are the secondary causes that you make happen. And yes, God works in conjunction with your effort. However, the primary cause is God. God's the one who gives you strength and life and ability and providentially organize your circumstances to give you the blessings that you have. So knowing this, 
should put an axe to all pride, knowing that ultimately all that we have comes from God. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Acts when he says, in him we, lo- we live and move and have our being. John the Baptist is recognizing that all things come from God, and he's telling that to his disciples, saying, hey, relax, we don't need to be jealous. We don't need to be content. We don't need to be discontent when other people succeed. We can be thankful knowing that it's all a gift from God anyway. For some of us, we might struggle a bit with pride and not even realize it. Perhaps you look back on your life and you wonder and you say, you know, I've, I've done way better than my siblings or a lot of my classmates and look at how I've been able to provide for my family. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you feel a sense, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, you feel a sense of superiority to other people. And it's very good to acknowledge your work ethic and the things you've done. But once again, this sort of misses the idea of understanding that it's all from God in the first place. And the more that you recognize that these things are from the Lord and his hand and his goodness and apart from him you cannot even breathe and move or do anything, the more it will create a sense of humility in you and a sense of thanksgiving to God for all that he's provided for you. And the more you'll, you'll want to serve people and help people and not feel like, oh, I'm above people, but no, 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 all that I have is from God. How can I use what he's blessed me with to serve and help other people? For some of us, our issue is not pride, but more we feel discontent. We know that all things come from God. We'll tell that to anyone till we're blue in the face, but we're not really happy with what he's provided. You might even ask, Lord, why'd you, why'd you give me this marriage? Why are my kids like this? How come they have this health condition? Or how come I'm not making more money? Or when you check social media or you examine your life with the life of others, you might feel like, how come, God, you're blessing everyone else except for me? It can be so easy to compare our lives to other people. And if you feel a sense of discontentment, I, I can understand those sentiments. Um, you know, for me, it's, I, I tend to be ambitious and kind of restless and I want productive change to happen yesterday uh, it's hard for me sometimes to and w- one of the things I've learned about enjoying God and enjoying his blessings is that this contentment that we're talking about it, it doesn't necessarily happen naturally it's, it's something that you have to pursue it, it's pursued by recognizing first and foremost that I'm a sinner before a holy God and I don't deserve anything that my entire life is an undeserved gift. The more we realize what we deserve, the more we'll be thankful for what we actually have. It comes by acknowledging God's blessings in the way that he has blessed you, maybe even writing some of them down. It comes from a thankfulness to the Lord for each and every way that he's blessed you along the way. Yes, be ambitious. Yes, work hard. Yes, try to get that promotion. Yes and amen. But at the end of the day, you go to sleep feeling good, trusting the Lord, knowing that the results are ultimately in his hands. And if he sees, if he wants, you to, if he wants to give that thing that you're thinking about to you, he can and will do that. Sometimes he says no. He's sovereign and he's wise and he, he's far above us in every category. And so part of this is just trusting his sovereignty and trusting his wisdom when life doesn't always go our way, knowing that the Lord is behind it all. Listen to this powerful quote from one study Bible. It says this, 
Discontent over God's wise gifts betrays unbelief and idolatrous arrogance. At the heart of discontentment is unbelief or sense or desire to say, God, like I really don't think you're running the universe that well, particularly my life. If I was in control, I would do X, Y, and Z differently. We have to trust God's control and his wisdom. You know, if we have feelings of, you know, fear and anxiety and frustration, it's totally good to feel that way. If you read the book of Psalms, it's filled with emotions of every kind. It's absolutely acceptable to weep and grieve over the life you wish you had. But after that, you know, you get up and, as others have said, you, you become thankful for the life that you do have. Trust the Lord and his, his timing in your life and the way he's working, and that will produce contentment in you. Not only does John the Baptist recognize where all things come from, he also recognizes his God-given role. This is the part of the thing, knowing that, see what position he has. And out of that, it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that position he has. And out of that, it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that the life he has. And out of that, it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that the life of beings. And out of that, it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that the life of being the Savior. Being out of that, it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that the life of being the Savior and being in the Christ. That it helps him to be humble, content, knowing that the life of being the Savior and being in the Christ and getting more. Him to be humble, content, knowing that. The life of being the Savior and being in the Christ and getting more attention is humble, content, knowing that the life of being the Savior and being in the Christ and getting more attention is reserved for joy, content, knowing that the life of being the Savior and being in the Christ and getting more attention is reserved for Jesus, and knowing that the life of being the Savior and being in the Christ and getting more attention is reserved for Jesus and not for him. So when John's disciples freak out about Jesus rising in popularity, about Jesus getting more attention, about Jesus changing more lives than John the Baptist, John the Baptist doesn't feel any sense of jealousy or rivalry because he knows his role. He stays in his lane. There's a commercial out there by a guy getting a tattoo. The guy getting a tattoo, you know, the tattoo artist says he can sense that the guy getting the tattoo is really nervous. And the tattoo artist says, relax, amigo, everything is just, it's going to look okay. And the guy getting the tattoo says, just okay? And then the guy and the tattoo artist says, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the tattoo artists in the city. And the, the guy getting a tattoo, he says, you mean one of the best tattoo artists in the city? And the tattoo artist says, yeah, something like that. And then the, uh, the guy, the tattoo artist is starting to write the tattoo and the guy getting the tattoo jumps out of his chair, so to speak, and says, whoa, aren't you supposed to draw something first? And the tattoo artist says, stay in your lane, bro. Um, now, a good tattoo artist will relieve anxiety, not heighten anxiety, right? He's not going to make you feel more nervous. He's going to calm you down. But that, that expression, stay in your lane, bro, became a cultural phenomenon. And whenever people say it, they know exactly what commercial you're talking about. If there was anyone that did a good job of that, it was John the Baptist staying in his lane, knowing the role that God has called him to and not trying to play a different role that the Lord has not called him to. Uh, 
since he was able to do that, he was able to be content and be humble when someone else received more success than him. For you, I'll ask, what is the Lord calling you to do? You know, if you go to a graduation speech, May and December are typically times for graduation speeches. I've been to enough of them to hear uh, that many graduation speeches tend to be very triumphalistic. You know, they say stuff like, you're going to go change the world, and you're so amazing, and you're going to change so many lives, and everything that you do is going to be so fruitful and effective everywhere you go, and it's like this feeding us some of these lies, and when really we open up the Bible and we see that we, were, we weren't really meant to be famous, well-known, or change the world. Perhaps God will use some of us to do that, but that's certainly not the ordinary thing about being a Christian. The, the ordinary way of being a disciple is basic, faithful Christian living to the Lord. That means for you and I, if you're a disciple of Jesus, it's faithfulness to Jesus, loving him and cherishing him above all things. Faithfulness to your spouse if you are married. Uh, Faithfulness to your church, prioritizing your church above other activities and so on and so forth. Uh, Career and your employment, what the Lord has blessed you with. It's just ordinary faithfulness to God. But no, 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 we live in a day with social media and comparison and all these other options. And as a result, we feel like we should be further ahead all the time. We're more blessed or having more followers Perhaps there's a degree of truth to some of that, but I'm convinced that if we stopped with the comparisons and stopped wondering about everyone else's life and started focusing on our own lives and being faithful to God with what he's blessed us with, we would have way more contentment. So the plea this morning is for all of us just to remember that Jesus was extraordinary, so we're free to be ordinary ordinarily just being faithful to him, not trying to change the world. If he uses us to do that, great, but we don't have to. It's just ordinary faithfulness to him in the big things and the small things and trusting him with the outcomes of it all. And if we do that, we will have an increased sense of contentment and humility in our lives. John brings up the bridegroom metaphor in verse 29. Uh, Today we would say that the guy who's about to be married is the groom And the woman is the bride, but back then they used the word bridegroom. And the best man, uh, you know, John the Baptist refers to himself as the best man and Jesus as the bridegroom in this metaphor. And uh, the best man back then played a tremendous role in weddings, way more than the best man would do today, like sending out the wedding invitations and arranging the wedding and, and acting as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. The, the, the best man did his role, and then when the groom showed up, he got out of the way. I did my work. Today's the day of the wedding. It's about the groom now. Let me get out the way. Now, that's the metaphor that John the Baptist is saying here. He's saying, I, I've baptized, I've preached, I've talked about the kingdom of God Jesus is here. His public ministry has started. We're in the beginning of the Gospel of John. It's time for me to get out the way. That's what he says in verse 30. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. These are some of the most famous words in all of Scripture. He's saying, what John is actually saying is that 
uh, in chapter 5, John's actually talked about in the past tense, and later John's actually beheaded for calling out someone for their sin. And so when John the Baptist says, um, he must increase, I must decrease. He's not saying, I- I'm nothing, you know, I'm worthless, I'm, I'm like how some Christians take that verse. No, no, you're created in the image of God, very, very valuable to the Lord. But what he's saying is that now it's time for my ministry to leave, to be less prominent, and it's time for Jesus' ministry to rise. This is what he's trying to tell his disciples He's like, don't be jealous and resentful that Jesus is starting to grow in popularity. This is not a competition. I've been sent here for this very reason to point to him. His ministry must continue to grow, and mine is going to start to dwindle. And that's exactly what happens throughout the book of John. He must increase, and I must decrease. For those of you familiar with acting terms, reading a book and the commentator was talking about upstaging. Upstaging is when the lead actor comes on the stage, the rest of the actors and actresses turn their back to the audience and look at the star actor. That's kind of what our lives were meant to be like, that we turn our back to the world and say, no, no, my life is not about me, it's about Jesus and his glory and making much of him. Another thing that, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to just turn with me to verses 31 through 36. 31 through 36. In just a few verses, here's what we learn about Jesus. Verse 31, uh, Jesus has come from heaven. He has a heavenly origin, as one commentator said. Verse 32, Jesus has come to bear witness about what God is like, even though many reject his testimony. Verse 33, whoever believes in Jesus believes and shows that the God of the Bible is real and true. Verse 34, unlike the Old Testament prophets, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves Jesus and has given all authority into the hands of Jesus. Right now we're under fearful times, times of uncertainty, anxiety, worry. It's totally good to wash your hands and practice social distancing and buy that hand sanitizer and follow the government's rule and to be cautious, yes and amen, there's wisdom and prudence and all of that. But also for for Christians, for those who follow Jesus, we remember verse 35 that all authority over everything that happens in the universe has been given to Jesus. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. I didn't say that. Bad things happen all the time because we live in a fallen world. In Genesis chapter three, in the very beginning of the Bible, and since then our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to work, and death has will hit every single person, and there's a world of Satan and sickness and so on and so forth. Bad things are going to happen to all of us, But Christians can have a supernatural peace and a supernatural confidence in God because we know, verse 35, all things have been given to Jesus. All authority has been given to him. That means if you're a follower of Jesus, nothing can touch you without his permission. So yes, we practice prudence, but also we 
go to sleep good at night knowing that Jesus is in control and we are not. The last verse in this text says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the very last Bible verse in chapter 3, and it serves to conclude the entire chapter. Of all the Bible verses in Scripture, it's probably one of the most clear on who's saved and who's not, and what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to be saved from the wrath of God. John says that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. He doesn't say whoever believes in Jesus will get to go to heaven in the future. That's totally true. Totally true. But eternal life is not just a future thing. He says has eternal life. That's in the present. In other words, eternal life, believing in Jesus, isn't like, oh, I suffered now, non-Christians get to have all the fun, life is miserable now, but once I get to heaven, it'll be all worth it. Eternal life is, yes, heaven is greater than anything I can imagine, but also now, the peace of knowing God, worshiping God, the satisfaction that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus, the contentment that he can provide, there are more implications to eternal life than just heaven. And John says that whoever believes in Jesus has this eternal life. Notice he doesn't say uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not have eternal life. He doesn't say that, although that would be true. What he says is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. John contrasts belief and does not obey. The antithesis is belief and obedience. In other words, biblical belief in Jesus is accompanied with obedience to him. So if someone says, I believe in Jesus, but there's no evidence of love for God, love for people, love for the word, love for holiness, that, that talk is just lip service. The obedience doesn't have to be perfect, right? None of us are perfect, but true biblical belief in Jesus requires obedience to him. And Jesus says that anyone who believes in me later will have eternal life. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, this Bible verse, verse 36, quite plainly puts it and says that the wrath of God remains on you as a just punishment for sin. If you are a Christian, the wrath of God has been removed from you forever. And all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And the righteousness of Christ has been given to you based on what Jesus has done. The one who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. I was uh, listening to a, reading a book actually by a church planner, a guy who started a new church from scratch. The church is thousands and thousands of people today. But when it first started, hardly anyone showed up. And so he was going around town trying to find a place for them, for his new church to meet. And there was this Christian organization, or at least it had the name Christian on their title that was originally started to help kids and to point people to Jesus and tell them about what a saving relationship with Jesus is like. But they had big facilities that serve other purposes as well. So he walks into the facilities and says, hey, I'm a pastor, I'm a church planner, I'm starting this new church plant. Can we, can we use your facilities for this new church plant? 
And the guy working there said, no, sorry, we don't partner with religious organizations. Here's a, an organization that started out as one trying to promote Christ and serve other people, but they have totally lost their way. You can judge them, I can judge them, but it's best not to because it can happen to you and it can happen to me. The more we remember that our lives were meant to glorify and exalt Jesus, the more we remember that all things come from his hand, the more we remember our purpose, stay in our lane, and have a humility and a sense of contentment about us. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you would give us supernatural contentment and humility. I pray you protect each and every single Bethesda church member from, um, from the evil one, his servants and their works. Lord, we know that hard things happen, but we know that you're in control. We pray that you help us, Lord, uh, in these ensuing weeks with uncharted territory. Please continue to give us wisdom and help, and help us, Lord, to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.